Good morning. Good morning, Daniel. <laughs> and I just said good morning. I heard Daniel say good morning back, so I'm just saying good morning. Hey, how are people feeling? Are people a little sleepy, a little cold, a little chilly? It's, it's cold, like the weather has changed. I was uh, talking a little bit with the worship team before that the, uh, the uh, 10 or so hairs on my arm are all kind of standing up because <laughs> I'm feeling kind of cold. But it's good to be in worship together. Um, we were talking a little bit before, and I agree with what uh, Jeff said at the beginning. Like where you might come from, from your week, what Jeff said was it's such a gift to be here. It's a gift to come here and to focus again on who God is in our lives. Because I don't know what your week looked like. I don't know where, what, what you experienced Monday through Saturday. But for me, there's a lot of stuff that kind of continues to sort of bombard me and distract me, call for my attention, causes me worry. And what I need each week is to come and to be with other Christians and to just be in the presence of other, other believers and to be in the presence of God, be in the presence of God's word and again say, what is this about? What's my life really supposed to be about? And to center my life again on God's word. So you might have had a week where you were just super faithful and you were reading the book of John and you were praying and you were completely tracking and you come going, man, I am super ready to worship. I'm super ready to expect God to do something in my life. Or you might have come here this morning out of a week that was super full and super distracted and maybe you just barely made it to GRX today and you're running and you got tons of stuff you got to do afterwards. I don't know how you've come, but what I invite you to is to say, hey, for this chunk of time that we're here together, as much as you can, we just open up ourselves before God's word and say, God, What do you want to show us this morning about who you are, God? And what do you want to show us about ourselves and who we are? And what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ in a real way, in a relevant way, every day of the week? What does that mean? What does that mean for us? Today, we're going to continue looking at the Gospel of John And we're going to pick up something in John chapter 19. And when I've been looking at that and praying about that and reflecting about that for us as a church, this one phrase came to my mind. This one kind of word, well, it's actually two words, that came to my mind as we grapple with this passage in John chapter 19. And it's this this two-word kind of phrase, and it's called King makers. Kingmakers. So if you see that this, this uh, sermon is titled The Kingmakers. And we're going to look at that a little bit out of John chapter 19. Now kingmakers is generally a political term. If you know politics, you know socially, you know history, what goes on. The kingmakers, it's usually a political term. But I'm going to use this definition of kingmakers as we look at the passage today. And kingmakers, I'm wanting it to say this. Kingmaker, it's one, it's a person, 
It's one having great influence over who or what will rule. It's a kingmaker. One having great influence over who or what will rule. It's a kingmaker is. Someone having influence over who or what will rule. And as I read our passage today in John, I'd like us to ask ourselves, who are the kingmakers in this passage? Who in this passage has the power to decide uh, who or what will rule? Who has the power to decide what's going to rule? Who are the kingmakers? So if you have your Bible there, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16 and take a look at what's going on here in this story. By way of a little background, what's going on here in the Gospel of John is that Jesus Christ is coming to the end of the story. That Jesus Christ is right now on trial before Pilate. And if you know the Gospel of John, where this locates us is that Jesus Christ has been betrayed by Judas. And Jesus has been arrested now and taken by the Roman authorities. Peter has denied Jesus Christ three times. So Peter has distanced himself from Jesus. And Jesus is now with Pilate. The scene around Jesus is that there's this huge mob of people. The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, and they're all trying to get Pilate to crucify Jesus Christ. Now, historically what's going on is that the Jewish people actually can't put anyone to death. The only people that can kill anyone in this time or sentence someone to death are the Roman authorities because Rome has control over the whole region. And the reason why the Jewish people cannot sentence Jesus to death, they want to sentence Jesus to death because he's saying he's the son of God. And that's blasphemy. And so the Jewish leaders are trying to kill Jesus for that uh, religious theological blasphemy. But they cannot put Jesus to death himself because of the political structures. And so only the Romans have the authority to put someone to death because they are the authorities in that region. That's the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That's the first century in Jerusalem area. Only the Romans can rule And only the Romans can set the rules. And so only the Romans can say who gets put to death. That's all this historical background because that comes to play in this passage. Why only Pilate is the one that can sentence Jesus to death in this. But anyway, that's what's going on. Big crowd, big riot, lots of anger. Pilate there is the Roman authority that can make judgment over Jesus Christ. And so now Pilate is with Jesus, and we pick it up, chapter 19, starting at verse 1. This is reading out of the English Standard Version. That's what the ESV means up there, English Standard Version. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. uh, Pilate had Jesus beaten. Then the soldiers, that's these Roman soldiers, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on Jesus' head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. What's going on there is that they, they knit this crown together of thorns. They place it on his head. The crown is sort of symbolic of leadership, of kingship. 
And then they take a purple cloth and they wrap it around him. But they're not actually acknowledging him as king. They're mocking him as king. In the first century, purple was a sign of royalty. It was a sign of kingship. Purple was a very expensive dye to get. They had to get the purple from the shellfish in the Mediterranean region. And they'd grind that up and they'd get the dye out of the shells. And so when you made a purple cloth, it, it was very expensive. And so it was really reserved for the kings. It was really reserved for royalty. But here the soldiers are mocking Jesus. They put the robe on him. They put the crown on him. And they say, hail, king. You're the king. Hail. And then they beat him up. They're mocking him. They're mocking him. Okay. So then Pilate went out again and said to them, um, said to the Jewish crowd, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is on trial. Pilate doesn't find any guilt in Jesus Christ. So he's bringing Jesus out to the people and saying, I don't find any guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to the crowd, to them, the Jewish crowd, behold the man. And when the chief priests, the chief priests of the Jewish people, and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. It's the Roman torture for nailing someone to the cross. (coughs) Excuse me. Nailing someone to the cross and killing him. Pilate said to him, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate is telling the Jewish people, you kill Jesus. I don't find any guilt in him. You kill him. And then look at this. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid And he entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? Where do you come from? Where are you the king? Where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given from you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. See, isn't that interesting that the Roman authority sought to release Jesus from crucifixion? From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Meaning Caesar was the emperor, and if Jesus is the king, he's threatening that kingship of Caesar. And see, this is where the Jews are very savvy because they are now putting Pilate in a very difficult position. If Pilate releases Jesus Christ and Jesus declares himself king. What happens is that then Jesus is king? No, the emperor is king. You can't have that in the Roman rule. In Roman authority, there can only be one king, and that is Caesar in Rome. But if Pilate releases Jesus, who is also king, all of a sudden it looks like Pilate 
is in support of Jesus' kingship. And because Pilate does not want to get in trouble with the king of Rome, he's caught. He can't release Jesus as king and also affirm Caesar as king. So the Jews are very savvy here. Politically, politically Pilate is caught. Pilate is trapped. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and then sat down on the judgment seat in a place called the stone pavement and an Aramaic gabatha. So Pilate sits down in the seat of judgment and he's about to pronounce judgment over Jesus because politically he's trapped. He has to pronounce judgment now over Jesus Christ. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And then Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. Pilate says, behold your king. And the people cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests of the Jews, they say, We have no king but Caesar. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the people, to be crucified. And then the story goes on from here that Jesus Christ is crucified. What's going on here? The kingmakers. What do we see in this passage? Who are the kingmakers? There's actually three reflections that I want to make on this passage as we look at it today. I want to look at these three questions around this idea of the kingmaker, the kingmakers. The first question is this, who are the kingmakers with the power to decide who or what will rule? Who are the kingmakers? The second question is this. What does this then tell us about God? And then the third question that I want us to look at is why does kingmaking matter at all for you and for me? This story happened about 2,000 years ago, but for today, for us now, what does it matter for us that kingmaking is even present in this passage. Why does that matter for us today? So the first question, who are the kingmakers? Who are the people that have the power to decide who will rule and who will reign? Who are the kingmakers? We are. We are the kingmakers. We are. The people are the kingmakers. In the story of humanity in the Bible, What we see in people, we are the kingmakers. We are the people in scripture that it shows us that we are the ones, humans are the ones, and we decide what we will follow. We decide what will rule. People decide what will will be king and what will rule. We make our kings. It's not God. We make them. Scripture has this all throughout it as a theme. You know the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible, one of the very first stories about people and God. What happens in that story? God makes the garden. God creates Adam and Eve. He sets Adam and Eve in the garden, and he tells Adam and Eve that they can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
They can't eat from that tree. They can eat of all the other trees. That's what God sets up. That's the rule of God. He says, you do this and you'll live. But what do Adam and Eve do? They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The one tree that God says, don't eat from. God only had one rule for them to do, and they broke it because they wanted to decide what and who would reign and rule. It was Adam and Eve, right from the very beginning. But then in Scripture, we see this again and again. Think about the story of Moses. Think about what happened in the book of Exodus. In the story of Moses, in the story of Exodus, it's God who rescues the people out of the slavery that they had in Egypt. That's the whole exodus, exiting, that God took his people and they exited or they had the exodus out of Egypt. So God rescues his people. God delivers the people from destruction by parting the Red Sea. People cross dry land. God provides for these people in the desert, in the manna, in the quail. God is taking care of them. But then they decide they don't want to worship God. When Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, what are the people do? If you know the story, you know that people gather all their gold together and go, well, we haven't seen Moses in a while. He's up on the mountain talking with God. I know what we should do. Let's get all our gold together. And they melt all the gold down, and then they make a golden calf. They make a golden calf. And then it says in Exodus 32, 4, and Aaron received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and they made a golden calf. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This golden calf is what brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's not God. It's this cow. It's this golden bovine. What's going on there? It's that in history and in humanity, we want to make something to rule over us. That's not God. That's something else. Later on in the book of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel was a prophet for the Lord. And God is leading his people. And then there's this thing that happens where all of a sudden the people say, you know what? We don't really want God to be our king anymore. We want a human king. And Samuel's like, the prophet of God said, no, 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 that's not a good idea. But the people say, we want a human king like all the other nations. All the other nations around us have a human king. We want a human king. We don't want God to be king. We want a king like all the other nations. And Samuel goes, man, this is not a good idea, people. God's your king. The people say, we want a human king. And so Samuel prays to the Lord, and then the Lord says this to Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. This is God speaking. But God says, they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, 
forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. See, God is saying to Samuel, see, this happens. It happens over and over again. From the day I brought the people up out of Egypt, when they made the golden calf, all the way till now, they're rejecting me as their king. They're rejecting me as their king. People do this all through scripture. People do this all through scripture. And I'm suggesting today that really as people, we're no different. We do this as well. It's a struggle for us, even as people that follow Jesus. It's just so natural for us as humans to want to reject God as king. And they did it so much in scripture. So who are the kingmakers? The people. We are the kingmakers. We get to say what will rule. But then the second question I want us to look at is then what does this tell us about God? I mean, God is all powerful. God is all omnipotent. God is omniscient. God knows everything. God can just make us follow him, right? God's all powerful. God can just force us to follow him. Unless it shows us something about the quality and nature of God. Why would God not force people to follow him? And the reason why I think God wouldn't force us is because it's keeping in the very nature of God. That God doesn't force us to follow him because God loves us. And God loves us so much that he gives us the choice. God gives us the choice to follow him and to name him as the one that will rule and reign in our life. We can choose God because God loves us. We can choose God or not choose God because God loves us. There's a family that I know, um, and they've got, uh, they've got two kids, and uh, their kids are adults now. And um, uh, this, it's just really interesting to, to know this family and walk with this family. In this family, with their two kids, they've got two kids, and they raised them up, and they took care of them. They had adopted these two children when they were very young. And they raised these kids up, and they loved these kids, and they raised them. And these two kids took very different roads. One of their kids has grown up now as an adult and loves their, loves their parents. They're with them in family events. They spend time with the family and the extended family. This, this one child just is a part of the family. And the parents love this child who's now an adult. And it's, it's a reciprocal relationship. But in this family, there's another child, also adopted. And when this other child became an adult, this other child, the second child, decided to not have anything to do with their parents. They're adopted. They're not my biological parents. You just kind of raised me. And so this other child decided to just go their own way. And even now to this day, as I I still see this family, I still see these parents, that's how their family runs. They have one child that's an adult and they know what's going on and then I've got grandkids and and so there's a next generation and together at family gatherings, this one 
adult child is now with the family, grandkids, and they continue to have this relationship of love and relationship together. And the other adult child, we don't know. We don't know where they are. They're completely gone. It's a parental kind of love that loves both children. But those parents cannot, in love, force either of those two children who are adults to love them. In love, you simply have to love and you open up the possibility for someone to love you back or not love you back, to follow what you want for their life or not follow what you want. And so what does this tell us about God? If we are the kingmakers and we decide what will reign and rule, what does it tell us about God? That because God gives us the choice to choose, God lets us choose. It points us to God's love for us. Because love never forces. Love can only invite and woo and create the space for people to choose. And that's what we see about God. That's what we see. That Jesus Christ, even in this, even in this scene, gives people the right to choose. Will they choose him as king or not? Will Pilate choose Jesus as king or not? Will the Jewish people choose Jesus as king or not? It's up to them because God creates that space because God loves them and creates that space for them to choose. So then the third question, why does this matter for us at all? Right now, why does kingmaking at all decide for us? Why does it matter for us at all? Because each of us in our lives Every day, we decide who will be king. We all make something king in our lives. You might not have ever thought about it like this, but we all make something or some things king in our lives. We all bow down to something in our lives. We all have something in our lives that we say, this is going to rule. Maybe it's explicit and we know it. Maybe it's implicit and it's just by our behavior. But we all have something or some things. Let me try to show it to you guys in a different kind of way. This is sort of something that helped me think about it and go, wow, man, this is how I had to grapple with this. Let me ask this question. And this is another way to get at this idea of what rules in our life. Why do you think it's so hard for us to love as Christ calls us to love. Why is it hard for us to love? Why is it so tough for us to live unselfishly? Why is it so hard for us to do good? There's an author named Tim Keller. He's out in New York, and he's a pastor of this church called Redeemer Church, and he's written a bunch of books. And one book he wrote is called Counterfeit Gods. And what I love about what Tim Keller says about this is he says this, and it's going to be up here on the screen. It is so hard to live unselfishly because in any actual circumstance or situation, there is something you feel you must have in order to be happy. 
right? Why is it so hard for us to live unselfishly? Because there's something in our life that we want to have to make us happy. Something that is more important to our hearts, to your heart, than God himself. If we can identify what that thing is in our heart that we need to make us be happy, it's going to give us insight into what we say rules in our life. Let me try to give you an example out of something that happened in my own life. Something that happened that I discovered, wow, this is ruling in my life more than God. I was in a work situation where um, it was kind of a little bit hostile. I was in a work situation where it was a little bit conflicted, and it's kind of rough to be in there. And um, it was tough. It was really kind of tough. You know, maybe you understand that kind of work situation where it's a little bit conflicted, people are a little bit on edge, people aren't really feeling super safe about the environment. And so I was in in a work environment like this, and, you know, I'd pray about this work environment, and what, you know, what should I do? God, what do you want me to do here? I'm a Christian, and how do you want me to engage in this? And I kind of began to sense that God was wanting me to help bring some clarity to this situation and to start naming a couple of things, and to start trying to bring some healing to this work situation. As praying about it and saying, okay, God, you want me to... It's a risk, right? You know if you're in a conflicted work situation, and you're there, and you begin to name things that are true, it's a risk. So you begin to... You begin to I began to pray about this, but it sensed that God was wanting me to do this. So I began to talk with some people and talk with some leaders and begin to name some of the things that were difficult, that were unhealthy. And, and it began to feel a little bit conflicted, even in myself. And then... And even my prayer times, I was like, God... This is scary, but what do you want me to do? And, and, and I started going down this road. And I felt like it would be faithful to start naming some things and to start bringing some people together to talk about some things. And so over a course of several months, I began to talk with people and began to bring up some things and began to gather people. I gathered some people together to talk face-to-face about some really difficult things. And in that whole course of time, a miracle happened. God worked in the hearts of people in this situation. And healing began to happen. Honesty began to emerge. And things that were broken began to get healed. Health began to come to this organization. And it was really great. It was really, really great. And I was like, man, this is really cool. God is working here. This is totally awesome. And then something began to turn and happen that was a little bit gnarly. What happened was, and I I didn't quite kind of get what was going on, but even as there was healing happening and clarity happening, I thought, wow, this is miraculous healing some things began to go a little sideways. And there was some politics, and I think there was some sin, and I think there was some brokenness. And some things started to go kind of not so good. And the, the, the bottom line, what happened was, then after a course of some time, after this healing, was that I felt like who I was in the organization 
that my own reputation started to get kind of trashed. Like I began to kind of get sort of some of the yuck sort of on me. And just through a bunch of things that I think were just politics and I don't know all the stuff that happened, it basically, it just turned out to be kind of gnarly for me. And it was a huge bummer and it created a lot of stress. And so where am I going with this? So where I was going with this is I started praying to God and I said, God, what happened? I was faithful, healing started to happen and then all of a sudden my own reputation starts getting trashed and I start getting kind of stomped on. And I said, what's going on here, God? I'm faithful. Shouldn't I be victorious? Shouldn't this happen? Shouldn't this be great? Shouldn't people just totally love me? Shouldn't I get like employee of the year award? And then this little thing came to me in my prayer time. This little thing, this little question came to me from God. And I felt like God asking me in prayer, is it enough for you to know that you've been faithful? Not that your reputation is trashed. Not that you feel like a bummer. Not that you feel like it's a big bummer. Is it enough for you to know that you were faithful to what I called you to do? Now, of course, the good Christian answer the good answer that the pastor should say is, yes, Lord, it was enough for me to know that I was faithful. That's the good Christian answer. But the reality for me was, no, it wasn't. I said, God, no, it's not enough for me to know that I was faithful. I want people to go, wow, good job, Scott. You brought so much healing here. I wanted the acclaim of people. I wanted the approval of people. And then I began to see what was ruling in my life. What had I made king in my life? Was Jesus my king? Was God my king? Or was the approval of people my king? Is it enough for me to know that I've been faithful? Not really. Not if the approval of people was what I really wanted. That was what was going to make me happy. Right? Why is it so hard for us to be unselfish? Why is it so hard for us to love people the way Jesus loved people? Why is it so hard? Because there's something else in my heart that I want that that's going to make me happy. If I just had the approval of people, that's what's going to make me happy. That's my king. And Jesus Christ every day gets to say, who will rule in your heart? Will it be the approval of people? Or will it be me? Is it enough to know that you've been faithful? Let me give some practical, other practical examples of this. Let me, let me give some other practical examples because if you are here, if you've come to GRX this Sunday morning and you want to grow in your faith as a follower of Jesus Christ, 
if you want to grow in your discipleship, if you want to be transformed and you want to be serious about what does it mean to grow and mature and be transformed in Jesus Christ, then let me offer a couple of practical things that you can do, some practical ways that this might show up in your life. It might feel a little bit uncomfortable because I'm going to name a couple of things, but I already named approval of people as something that rules. If that's you, then you can kind of tune me out because you can just work on that one. Because that's the one that I've been working on for a long time and I keep working on it. But let me give some other practical ways where kingship might show up in, in our lives. Image, reputation. Have you made or have we made our image or our reputation, our king in our lives? Is looking good our most important thing? Do we spend a lot of time worrying about our reputation, about what other people think of us, being liked by other people or getting other people to like us? Are we ruled by that? If so, let me offer this. Try this. To make Jesus Christ your king and you struggle with image or reputation, try this. Try releasing thinking about your own reputation and instead think about God's reputation. Think about God's reputation in your actions, in your decisions, in what you decide to do, in how you decide to spend your money, in how you decide to spend your time, in how you're generous. Think about God's reputation and live out of bringing honor to God's reputation. Live in thinking about, how can I glorify God with my words? Not get these other people to glorify me or or build up my own reputation. How am I doing with my words, my time, my money, my actions, my decisions to bring honor to God's reputation? How can I provide for someone and love for someone such that it glorifies God's reputation and honor God? So if reputation or image is maybe your king in there, change the focus from our own reputation to God's reputation. What would it look like in your week to bring honor to God's reputation Monday through Friday in your workplace. Honor God's reputation. Let me offer something else here real quick. How about control? Being in control. Not only just getting all your ducks in the line and things like that, but like I need to be in control because that's my life. That's my king. That's my spot. Are you ruled Are we ruled, am I ruled, by a constant desire to remain in control of things? So how can you tell if control is your king in your life and that thing that rules? Consider this. When things are not in your control, how angry do you get? How depressed do you get? How sad do you get? How frustrated do you get when things aren't in your control? If you get ballistically angry when things are out of control, then you might want to look at this because maybe being in control is your issue. If you're married to somebody right now and when your spouse is out of control, feels out of control, and they go ballistic, 
you might be going, hmm, I wonder if my spouse's issue is being in control. You might want to wonder about that. If, if any of this stuff comes up for you, if you feel like, man, being in control is my issue, that's, that's what rules in my life, let me offer this. To make Christ your king, I'd, I'd say this. Number one, know God. I would say one of the things that's so important for you is to know God. That means know God in Scripture. I would call you to read your Bible every day. One chapter a day. Read the Gospel of John, that's fine. You can read Mark, you can read Genesis. Read one chapter a day because that begins to put the control of your life, the control of your time, into God's hands by reading one chapter a day because you're controlling your time by putting that into God's hands. Number two, ask him in situations, Lord, what do you want me to do? That means you're going through your day and you hit a situation and you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Not how can I control this, but Lord, what do you want me to do? Listen and then have courage to do that. Because God may lead you into something that you may feel very out of control to do. But that's placing the control of your life into God. God, what do you want me to do? There's a whole bunch of other things that could be our thing for, for, for what's a king. Not just approval of people, not just my image, not just being in control. Comfort, safety, finding comfort feeling good, making sure everything is safe. These are things that sometimes rule our lives. How about entertainment? I'm only happy when I'm entertained. I go from the next entertainment thing to the next entertainment thing to the next entertainment thing. That's the thing that rules. Jesus says, I want to rule in your life, not the next entertaining thing. Or maybe my own needs, maybe my own needs, satisfying my own needs are my king. God says, no, it's not about that. It's not about our needs. Find your satisfaction in me. There's all these different things. But Jesus says, find your satisfaction in me. We've been studying the gospel of John. All these things come up in John. Jesus says this. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John 10.10. John 15 says this. Jesus says, if you keep my commands, if you follow me as king, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. Under the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus Christ wants us to say yes to his kingship in our lives. The question for us is this. Will we make Jesus Christ our king? We are the kingmakers. We say what rules in our life. Will we make Jesus Christ our king? See, you're the only one that can choose. I can't choose for you. Your parents and their faith, they can't choose for you. 
Only you can choose what you will say is going to be king in your life. Jesus loves you. God loves you. That's why he came to earth. That's why he suffered what he suffered before Pilate and what he suffered on the cross. That's why he died and rose again so that we can be forgiven of our sins and have a life in Jesus Christ, ruled by him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His life is abundant. His joy is everlasting. In him, in Jesus Christ as king, you will find forgiveness for your sins. You will find rest for your soul. You will find hope for this life and for the life to come. Let me offer a prayer for us. Let me invite you to just reflect. Just close your eyes a little bit and just reflect a little bit. Think about your life. Think about what are the things that rule your life? What are the things that you're worried about? What are your goals for your life? What are the things in your life that compete with Jesus for that primary place? Reputation, approval of people, money, feeling good. And let me offer this prayer for us. Lord Jesus Christ, you want us to have life and have it abundantly. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and fill us with your joy. Fill us with your love. Fill us with a sense of who you are. God, we lift up to you that thing in our lives that clouds us from seeing you and from saying yes to you. Jesus, there's people here that want to make you their king again. God, I pray that in this moment, people would say yes to you again. Jesus, we want to proclaim you as our king. Lord, we know that you're here. And God, we ask that you would come into our heart and into our life again. God, for people that aren't sure, I just pray that in this day and in this week, that you would reveal more of yourself to us. That we, God, would be able to see you and to see your goodness and to see why saying yes to you makes more sense than saying yes to all the other things around us. God, give us strength and courage to say yes to you. Clarity to see the things that we've put in our lives, that we've bowed down to. And God, help us say yes to you again in all areas of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.